Janet Forrest. Welcome to The Shelves of Yore. up this season, Reference Library Associate Jim Borzleri and I thought we would select a few volumes from the 1900 catalog that offer a sampling of what kind of books were available in the collection. We had planned to do just one episode, but as you will learn next week, our friends Sarah Woolsey and Helen Hunt Jackson really deserve an episode of their own. So stay tuned for that. In this episode, we'll peruse a 19th century beach read by Edward Bellamy. It's set on Nantucket, and you may or may not want to add it to your summer reading list. But first, we flipped through a book that documented the California gold rush in real time and was one of nearly a thousand books included in Frederick Sanford's personal library, which was gifted to the Athenaeum after his death. The Annals of San Francisco, published in 1855, was written by Frank Soule, John H. Gion, and James Nisbet. But before we crack open the book, let's have Jim remind us who Frederick Sanford was. Frederick Sanford was a very generous contributor to the Athenaeum. He eventually ended up as president of the Pacific Bank after making a significant amount of his fortune out in California during the gold rush. And if you look at it on our YouTube site, I think we've got a, a fairly long presentation on Sanford himself. So I'm just going to kind of summarize it here. He was essentially self-educated like a lot of Nan- native Nantucketers. He had a few years of schooling before he went off on his first whaling voyage, but he turned out to be a very, very prolific reader and writer. And he began collecting books almost as a teenager and just kept on collecting them over the rest of his life. So when he did pass away, he bequeathed to the Athenaeum, besides a fairly sizable cash donation, it was about a third of his estate. He also donated artwork that he had collected and more importantly, his personal library, which was almost a thousand volumes of books that he had amassed over his lifetime. And one of them was Annals of California. This is the history of the gold rush. And it's interesting because it was written almost as the gold rush itself was winding down in 1855. Sanford was there from about 1850 to about 1854. So for him, this was almost a documentary of his lifetime out there. But what's interesting about the book is it's beautifully put together. It's tooled leather. It's got gilt edging on it, and it's just filled with illustrations. So it's a very, very, even at the time, a very expensive work. And it's, I mean, I was able to place my hands on it. And I think if you came to the library and asked nicely, you could place your hands on it. But it's hefty, like even to lift the front cover up and drop it. And the pages, when you look at it, if it's standing on its side and you're looking at the pages, it's beautifully gilded. It's really quite a work of art. Oh, it absolutely is. And, you know, this was sold as a very high-end edition. This was not something you were just going to take to the beach and read, that's for sure. And yeah, it is extremely heavy. Uh, It's quite the doorstop. And it's also long. It's almost a thousand pages. And, And also what's interesting about it is this was back before, this is, as again, 1855. That's before they switched to paper made from wood pulp which is what we have today. And the problem with wood pulp is it's cheap, it's easy to use. The downside is they use so much acid to bleach the paper 
to get, you know, to break down the wood fibers, that the paper literally eats itself after a few decades. And that's why sometimes if you find a newspaper that's all of a year old, it's all kind of yellow and brittle. But because this is the older paper made from rag, it's almost like looking at a document that was printed just a few years ago. It's got some foxing on it, but that's about it. Otherwise, it's it's almost looks the way it did when it was first published. And it's telling about the collection that Frederick Sanford donated to the library because we know, and I'm sure people listening have been turned away, showing up with a box of books being like, Hey, do you want our books? You know, it becomes cumbersome. We don't always take the books, but this was, this was quite different. This was truly a a personal library. So talk a little bit about what that means. Well, this was uh, books that he considered important. Uh, during his lifetime. And again, even though he was self-educated, he read widely, especially for someone who was essentially a merchant most of his life. He would read Shakespeare, he would read history, politics, those who were of particular interest to him. He also read other works of fiction. He collected encyclopedias. So this is, you know, a really nice curated collection. And even though we didn't actually receive it until 1898, it actually filled in a few gaps. Just a quick recap. The Athenaeum printed a catalog in 1841, which we talked about in episodes one through four of this season. Then tragically, in 1846, there was a catastrophic fire that destroyed the original Athenaeum building and most of its collection. By some miracle, the printed catalog itself was saved, so we know what we lost in the fire. So when we look at the 1841 catalog and and we turn around and say, well, do we have a copy now? And it's like, yeah, but it's in the Sanford collection, which means we only acquired it 50 plus years after the fire itself. If he were alive today, what kind of books would he be reading? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it would be a lot of the books that we have. I think he would still be reading Shakespeare. He would still be reading some of the great histories. Where I think you'd see a difference, though, is that During his lifetime, there were no business books per se. By that, I mean biographies of either successful business persons or of successful companies or successful industries. So I think you'd see a few more of those. But again, then the question becomes, well, how many of those would he have saved? He might save the ones that were most influential to him, and he might have, like everybody else, tried to get into the library in a cardboard box, and we'd probably turn them away because they were somewhat ephemeral. The other thing I think he would probably collect today would be perhaps videos of the great plays, perhaps music. Obviously, there was no mu- there was no way for him to donate music, but there might be some of his personal favorites in that. Um, so there may be some, you know, if it was today, there might be some DVDs and CDs. But it does raise the question of if someone were to make a donation like that, let's say 10 or 20 years from now, when everything is streaming, would they be donating the rights? to watch it, you know, because there wouldn't necessarily be a physical object unless someone said, I'm going to make a really beautiful and complete and special edition of this movie or of this play and put it in a, you know, a really nice equivalent to what we saw with Annals of California. So that the object itself is as much a work of art as well as whatever it is it's, you know, it contains. Which goes back to what we've been talking about all along. What's ephemeral and what's valuable, what lasts and what's not worth keeping. If someone showed up on their on the doorstep of the Athenaeum and said, hey, here's a donation, we were like, wow, fantastic. That's going in the vault. What would it be? Uh, it could be a manuscript from someone on the island who is important to its history. That might be one thing, something that we didn't know about. Let's say if hypothetically uh, a journal from Mariah Mitchell 
that, you know, somehow survived outside the family were to pop up, that would be, you know, definitely worth it. It could be a photo album of the island and the island history, perhaps a period that's not really covered or uh, individuals that perhaps are normally not documented, you know, so it, it opens up a window into a part of the island's life that we didn't have. And it doesn't have to be something great or important. I would love to see, you know, if someone had photographs of bands that played at the chicken box or bands that played in some of the clubs that are now long gone in the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, that would be something we just don't have. Well, you furiously dig through your basement for those bootleg recordings of the Dave Matthews Band when they played at the Muse in the early 90s, let Jim and I tell you about a mostly forgotten novel that was set on Nantucket in the late 1870s as the tourism industry was just starting to gain traction. Tell us about this little novel from the 1800s that we thought was so interesting. Six to One. It was written in 1878 by a man named Edward Bellamy. And then if that name rings a bell, it's probably because of something he would write later. And that's called Looking Backward. This was a sort of depiction of a, a utopian America, 100 years in the future, which is unabashedly socialist. We had gone through great social upheaval, and we had come to a point where we had kind of created almost what we would think of as a, a worker's paradise. And I use that term advisedly because of some attempts in the 20th century didn't work out too well. Bellamy's was fairly benign. Everybody was well-educated. They were healthy. They were happy. They were doing what they wanted to do. But the plutocrats and the, you know, the Gilded Age had been pretty much obliterated. And so now most of the wealth, you know, had been kind of pushed down. And if you think of what Harriet Martineau was attempting, it was kind of in that direction. Only this involved sort of the transfer of the ownership. There was very little private property in Bellamy's utopia. But that would come later. Six to one itself is probably of more interest to people on Nantucket than anywhere else. It was written in 1878. At that time, Bellamy himself was, he'd gone through a few career changes. He'd been born in 1850. He spent a few semesters at Union College in New York. And then he went off to Europe for a while. He did study to be a lawyer. His older brother was one. But somehow he ended up in journalism. In those days, journalism was just an incredibly stressful, high-pressure kind of job. You know, similar to the way it is now. But the living conditions in New York City, which is where he was working, could only be described as horrific. I mean, the smog was bad. There was very little public, you know, any kind of public work. So the the health conditions were really pretty horrible. So it's no surprise that in 1875, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Now, it's possible that he visited Nantucket that summer with his brother. There does seem to be some indication. But what we do know for a fact is that to sort of treat his tuberculosis at the time, there was no medical cure. He went to Hawaii. And he spent about a year out there to recover. And when his health came back, he decided to leave journalism for something a little less stressful. And he decided to become a writer. And his first work was Six to One. How did he end up writing about Nantucket? Do we know about that? It is somewhat autobiographical because the lead character is a a journalist named Edgerton. He is clearly in bad health. And a doctor says, you need to go someplace and take a cure. They never use the word tuberculosis because this is a fairly light book, and I don't think they wanted to raise that issue. But what he did was, and again, if he had visited Nantucket a few years earlier, it made sense. Instead of setting it in Hawaii, he set it on Nantucket. And so Edgerton comes up because he has a cousin who is here, and the doctor says, you need to go someplace for six months. You need to go someplace that is as out of the way and as backward and as slow as you can get. And he says... Therefore, I recommend Nantucket. 
And at first, Edgerton, the character is like, why would I want to go there? It's just, you know, it's just this sand dune. And there's nobody there and it's completely out of the way. And the doctor's like, yes, that's the whole point. There are no railroads. There are no telegraphs. There's nothing to distract you. Just lots of sunshine and fresh air and you will get better. Well, and we've speaking of journalism, we've kind of buried the lead. So explain what the title means. Yeah, this is and this reflects a very real reality, because as, as we've discussed in some of the other podcasts, the Nantucket economy had pretty much collapsed. And at this point, they were they'd gone from 10,000 at its peak down to about 4,000, maybe 3,500 people. And any young man that could left the island to get work somewhere else. So who were left behind? Older retired men, children and women. And so there was this imbalance between, certainly within, you know, the 18 to 24 demographic, we'll call it, uh, between men and women. And so six to one refers to an alleged ratio that for every eligible man, there were probably six eligible, highly educated young women who had to sort of make do with what happened. So in the story, Edgerton's cousin says, oh, my cousin's coming. He's a handsome man. And she and five of her friends agree to share him. They make a pact and they say, we're going to share this man, but we're all going to do it together. So we're going to move as a group. No one gets to see him individually. No one gets to go out on a date with him. We're all going to go out on this collective date. And that's essentially what happens in the story of the book, Edgerton plus the other six women. What makes it kind of interesting is just from our perspective is, you know, obviously this addresses the demographics on Nantucket. And it also really sort of calls out what was recognized as the plight of the young women. They're highly educated, they're relatively worldly, and they're stuck on this island for because of family obligations or other reasons. And they're all fascinated with the outside world. They're fascinated with what's going on. And some of them just can't wait to get off. And they want to do nothing more than to leave as quickly as possible. Well, and the other thing that comes up in this book is throws back to the episode we talked about from 1841 to 1900. What happened there is the island starting to transition into tourism a little bit. And it does speak to the ambivalence that some of the islanders felt around the tourism. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's there's one scene where one of the young women is just saying, oh, I hope we don't become just a resort community in Edgerton. Is, and this is 1878. And Edgerton saying, oh, I'm afraid it's already happening. And to some way, he's right, because if you think back to our discussion of, let's say, the attempt of the Surfside development, you know, that was just a few years after this book is set. Already the signs are there. And I think one of the other young women complains about the fact that all the you know, anyone who shows up sort of expects everybody who lives there to sort of be at their beck and call, that essentially they've now become the hired help. And, you know, obviously some of these women resent it. Well, and also more than that, they show up and they get to play being a Nantucketer. Yes, <laughs> for, yes. For when the element. weather's nice for a few months or a few weeks. And then, you know, the rest of the year, I think the feeling was, well, this is our lives. We're not playing. This is who we are. We're not Disney characters dressed up in a suit. <laughs> yeah, but that's sort of how they're viewed as. You know, if you ask, and there, there's a quote somewhere about, well, what do people do when they go to Nantucket? And they say, well, what they're going to, you know, when they think of Nantucket, they think of blue fishing, because that was a big thing, sailing, going to the beach, not necessarily swimming, but they might do that, as well as what they called squantums, which is what we would call clam bake. And so that, those were sort of when they thought of Nantucket at all, that's sort of how they thought of the place. This is a little bit of a beach read. It is interesting to 
look and see what he had to say about the island. There's a sense of place when you're reading it, mm-hmm. whether it's art, art, accurate or not, we could argue about. What do you think the value of it is today if someone were to pick up this book and read it? Well, I mean, it is, it's a, it's at the time they would call it a pleasant idol, I-D-Y-L. And that's really what it is. It's, it is a beach read. As you said, it's a fairly quick book. It's fairly light. It really focuses on the relationship between Edgerton and the six young women. There are almost no other adults that are depicted. Everybody else is kind of off stage. So you're sort of seeing everything in, in terms of, of their relationship. And I think there are just moments that are kind of interesting. Some things, as you said, the accuracy is a little debatable, even though he, even at the time it was kind of after it came out, even people that liked it said, well, he made it sound as if there were no trees on the island. Absolutely, there were trees. He made it sound as if he was the only one here. In reality, there were several hotels that were open and were really doing quite well. The one thing that struck me was he describes the Sconset Road, and he says it's basically a tangle of ruts. And I think he says basically a thousand feet wide because the land is so cheap. If there's a rut, you just go around it. And then if that one gets deep, you go around that one. And suddenly you've got this spaghetti of ruts that are just stretching across this broad landscape because the land is worthless. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> the DPW is doing substantially better than they were. In they are doing. Yeah. But, but if you go back, there are photographs and there's one of a guy standing in a rut. And I think it comes up almost to his knees. I mean, it's incredibly deep. I don't, I don't know if he's right about, I think, it, I think he described it as a furlong, but I don't know if it's really a thousand feet wide, but you know, that would be considerably wider than the Sconset Road today, even with a bike path. So people would have been in carriages on horses, yes? Correct. Maybe bicycles, perhaps? Probably not, not bicycles. then. And bicycles probably wouldn't work on those kind of roads because nothing was right. paved except right. for the cobbles. And we all know yeah. what that's like. And this was before the railroad because the railroad wouldn't come to, Correct. I think, like 1890 or something. Was A little it? earlier. Yeah. It'd be about, yeah. it, would be, it was imminent. Yeah. But, you know, but he, you know, again, he was sort of setting a mood. So he made it sound like there was like no trees on the island. It was absolutely deserted. But he did note some things that were correct. Houses were being taken apart bit by bit and taken over to the mainland where they had more valuable. That was absolutely true. So, you know, there, there's enough truth in it that it's a pleasant read. And the parts that aren't totally accurate, it, it doesn't really detract from it. I would say it's worth opening it just to see that engraving. Oh, um, yeah. This gra- guy the in the boat. <laughs> Oh, he has quite a mustache, you know, and it's even commented in the boat. He has, you know, in the book that he has this magnificent mustache. And when you see the pictures of Bellamy himself, he did have quite the handlebar mustache. As light as it is, and it is fun. The other thing I should point out, and this is sort of a contemporary analysis, but it really flunks the Bechtel test. I mean, this is like when the women are talking, they all have individual personalities, but they're basically talking about either the absence of men or how they're going to keep Edgerton in line because they don't want them getting any independent thoughts before the summer's over. They just want to be able to, (laughs) they want to keep them on the straight and narrow. And underestimates the women who would have been probably pretty well-read and educated and uh, have their own interests. Yeah. And that was one of the other criticisms because one of the characters, they don't give her age specifically, but I think she's around 20. And, you know, it says that she's never been off island. So Edgerton has to describe a river to her because she's never seen one. And one of the criticisms, even at the time, was, no, no, everyone's been off island at least once. They know what a river is. But it's a fun beach read. Next week, we will wrap up season two of The Shelves of Yore with two fascinating women who were not only successful writers, but lifted each other up in the publishing industry at a time when women could use all the help they could get. 
This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was written, narrated, and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Jim Borzilleri for sharing his research, knowledge, and charming radio voice. Please check the show notes for resources and references for this episode. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. If you want to know more about the Athenaeum's catalogs, you can visit Jim in the Great Hall. You can find us in the clouds at nantucketathenaeum.org. Join us next time to take one more look at the shelves of York.